Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, what the fucksters, what the fuckadelics, what the fuck is happening? How are you? This is Mark Marin. This is my show. This is WTF, the podcast. Uh, I'm broadcasting today from a snowed in room in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's not, I do not think that it's the, any similar, I don't think it's similar at all to the Hateful Eight, which I have not seen yet, but apparently there's a situation where there are several characters snowed in and it gets a little rough that's all i know about that movie there's a there's a weather situation and then shit hits the fan in many different bloody ways i i I am going to see the film but i have not this does not seem to be happening what what do we got going on let's just let's let's just try to, to to stay in the moment here i have neil strauss on the show today now neil strauss wrote a book that caused a little trouble for some people, but uh, I think some people got a lot out of it. It was a a relatively controversial book a few years ago called The Game. Uh, It was an investigative piece uh, that began as an investigative piece. He went into the world of of, uh, pickup artists, the secret societies of these men who who have an angle and a system and, and, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, I guess the idea is to have sex with the women. Now, there was a lot of wrong about this whole idea, and there was a lot of uh, flack, but, uh, you know, it kind of took Neil in a direction he didn't really anticipate uh, and, and moved him through a world and through a series of behaviors that he is not necessarily proud of. Now, you have to understand, I met Neil when he was this very quiet, nebbishy Jewish writer hanging around the alternative comedy scene back in the early 90s or mid-90s, and when I heard he written that book, I was like, oh, is that the same fucking guy? How is that the same guy? That What the? What did he be? How did, that guy? Come on. So now he's written a new book called The, uh, the Truth, which is basically, I believe, his recovery from the game. That whatever, you know, he went through emotionally and sexually and personality-wise through getting sucked into the game, it, it, is, it, it, it has hit the wall. And now, uh, and now he has this new bit, this new book called uh, "The Truth," an uncomfortable book about relationships. And I have a very candid, intense, loaded conversation with Neil, who uh, who knows some things about me in the past, 
and you know has his experience of what I was like back and they interviewed me actually for a piece he was writing back in the mid 90s but also just sort of moving through what he learned about relationships and himself in the process of uh, of writing this newest book I, I was very excited to talk to him and it was a very intense conversation so look forward to that coming around the bend here so I've been in Albuquerque my hometown for a couple of days uh, as some of you know I was up in Santa Fe enjoying uh, the spa relaxation life and then we come down to Albuquerque now as some of you know I grew up here born in New Jersey moved to Alaska Albuquerque 71 72 started here in third grade my life began in Albuquerque New Mexico so I chose to do something that I don't usually do i mean i i see a couple of the people i know from uh when i grew up uh, uh dave kleinfeld devin jackson a couple people sam howarth i see some friends that you know that i've kept in contact with for the last 40 years 35 years and uh but i never really did the um let's go look at the elementary school let's go look at the first house i lived in when we moved here let's go do that let me drag my girlfriend through some sort of this is your life episode where I sit in front of structures and try to connect emotionally and, and memory-wise with my past. And what I sort of learned was I learned something about myself. What memories do you have as a person? Because those, those will sort of dictate or at least should be a window in how your brain works. Are the memories that you hold on to the shitty ones? Or are they the like, wow, that was the best time of my life? Or I remember that one time where I almost lost my finger. You know, like, what kind of person are you? Are you the like, I remember that one time that my, uh, you know, the car almost, or are you the person that's sort of like, oh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me? As you could imagine, I tend towards the finger loss type of uh, memories, but not, not so much. They still reveal things, you know? I mean, I went, we, I went to my elementary school where I went from third to fifth grade and uh, and then moved to a private institution, um, the groovy hipster sort of hippie private school for fifth and sixth grade. But I remember third and fourth grade, but there's weird memories that happen. I'm just sitting there. I'm looking at this playground where I sort of wandered. I walked down the street. It was right at the end of my block, Mark Twain Elementary. But I remember walking down to school and the memories that sort of flooded back. There was a couple. One of them was I remember spending time during recess and helping the um, special needs kids. Um, I, I, I just remember doing that. And I remember there was this very profound moment where a, a severely mentally challenged guy who I was playing football with, you know, tackled me with a force and energy that was astounding and, and made me cry. But he couldn't have been more excited about it. It's just, I don't know what I learned in that moment, but it was, it was something about... Uh, being a person and and the sort of um the the sort of differences and minds and, and but i kept i kept working with them and, and I'd, I'd go over there and play with them and and uh and and get them laughing so that was sort of one of my first sort of uh gigs as an entertainer and decent person was um helping the uh intellectually and mentally challenged have a fun recess i remember that i remember breaking my leg because my dad adjusted my bindings too tight and having a full leg cast and not being able to go to lunch and my girlfriend in fourth grade, Elizabeth, used to come and eat lunch with me uh, alone in the room. That's sort of a nice memory. It'd be nicer without the broken leg, but whatever. I remember I had a Roadrunner lunchbox, which I thought was stupid. And one day, and all the other kids had better lunchboxes. I don't even know what kind I really wanted. But uh, I remember I kicked it all the way home until it just broke and the lid broke off. 
And I told my mother, I told my mother, the big kids got me. The big kids did this to my Roadrunner lunchbox. That was their sole focus. Uh, she didn't buy it, and I ended up never having another lunchbox. Just brown bagging it. So those were the lessons in elementary school. Pretty exciting stuff, right, folks? Right? And then we went to my old house. Very few memories in the old house. I have some trying to mow the lawn, uh, but I didn't understand how to mow a lawn, that you had to do it in lines. I just kind of randomly mowed the lawn around in a circle until my neighbor Gary said you got to mow it in lines. That was a big lesson. I remember Old English Sheepdogs. I remember um, a Janis Joplin record, a Melanie record, a James Taylor record. I remember um, telling the uh, Latino uh, maid, that my, my cleaning lady that my parents had hired, um, who did not speak any English, that uh, she was using the wrong detergent in the dishwasher and she needed to use dish soap. And then we, um, we had a, a, a kitchen full of about a foot of foam and bubbles. And that was not a good day for her or me, but I cop to it. I guess the bottom line is, it's good to be home. It was good to see a couple of old friends. Uh, I feel very comfortable here, but uh, sometimes when I come out here with people, I, I don't always know, like, like it's overly emotional. There's no way you're not going to get a little tweaked out revisiting your childhood and wondering, and then seeing people that you knew back then now who are your friends since second grade, third grade, and now we're 52, 53 years old. It's hard. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a weird beauty to it, but there's also a little bit of, a, of heartbreak to it. Like, hey, we're still alive. We're doing okay. But man, you know, if I don't see you for a couple of years, one of us might be using a cane. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a little heavy, but I guess this is what life is. Uh, season three of Marin premieres on Netflix today. Today, if today is the 28th, this is the day you can watch season three of my IFC show Marin on Netflix. It's a good season. It's very exciting. It'll set you up for the season we're about to do. It gets pretty heavy at the end. Enjoy it. Watch it. It's your time to do that. All right. So right now, let's go to my conversation with Neil Strauss. His book, The Truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships, is available now. And this is, a, this is an intense conversation. So uh, I hope you did. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts like i don't think i've seen you in 20 years that was on your air america show right uh i don't know maybe that was 10 years ago but it was kind of like you weren't really there 
Yeah, you didn't really have so, a conversation. It was so early in the morning, too. It was early in the morning. I don't know if you were where you were at doing did you, it. Did you come in live or were you on the phone? No, I came in live. So, like, it was that morning show at Air America? Like, you, like it's between six and nine you came in? Yeah, but we already had more connection here in 20 seconds than we did there. Oh, well, it was crazy there, dude. Yeah, yeah it you're, was crazy. You're in real time. You're half awake. Right. Like, I remember you hanging around Luna Lounge right. when you were writing for what, Spin? Uh, New York no, Times. New York Times. Was that? Oh, did you write that piece about alternative comedy yes. in the Times? That was the piece that Lauren Michaels had read. Oh no way! Oh, it all comes back to Lauren Michaels. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that was the piece where you know I think he had read because he said I don't know what you think you're doing down there below 14th Street, That's but it doesn't funny. mean. It. But that was that piece. There was a picture of me, Ross Broccoli, and Jeff Ross. That's it. That's it. In the piece. Yeah. And that was the big, uh, you know, that was putting it on the map. Yeah. Alt I, comedy was on the map because of Neil Strauss. And I remember I came to the thing and you're like, this is the guy who ruined the scene. You singled me out. I did? Yeah. <laughs> you, you came to the show after that? Yeah. But I remember we talked and I remember talking to you and I and you were kind of like, you were, you know, you barely could talk for some, you know, it was sort it's of like. so a, true. I was. Incredible, just so ner nervous. Yeah, you were very nervous, and um, and then like I'll, I remember, what was the first big ghostwriting job you had? Was it Manson? Yeah, Marilyn Manson. So then I heard like you know like uh, you know Neil Strauss co-wrote this this huge book of Marilyn Manson. I'm like that fucking guy. Right. That guy can't even talk. <laughs> I think that yeah. I think it was disarming. They had nothing to fear from me. It was very disarming. Maybe. Well, what is that process of ghostwriting? How does that work? Oh, it's the be it's it's the best. You just hang out in their world as much as you can yeah. and absorb as much as their, of their life as you can and then when they're ready you talk so sometimes the after a show Manson would be doing a bunch of kind of he'd want to do a bunch of coke and then talk all night right. and record them all night right or other time you just sort of embedded yourself in your world and waited for those moments and observed the moment so for example he'd uh, <laughs> he'd have his bodyguard guard the bathroom door while he did coke in the bathroom <laughs> right. so you'd watch that and that would become a little detail that would inform the story and and did he let you put all that in yeah i wouldn't write a book with someone if they wouldn't if they had anything to hold back no oh really yeah, yeah that's the rule so so but you don't get final edit you just get an agreement you you get yeah you you get an agreement but i also have it i make some agreements up front i say uh -huh. if you're going to take anything out you have to put something better back in that, that is that's a little broad but it usually works it usually works and also i try to write it well enough that mm -hmm. even if they're resistant when they tell me they read it and they're like oh this has to stay and you were factual. Yeah, always, yeah. yeah the only yeah. thing you change is stuff for legal reasons and you'll right, maybe change someone's and, name or their right, right. details. So you had to sit there and watch Marilyn Manson do coke a lot. A lot of coke. And, in, <laughs> and, and indulged that. Right, and, and home movies. It was, it was fun because as a journalist, people only show you exactly what they want to show you because right. they know you're writing. Right, but right, right. But when they know they have the approval, they show you everything. So it's seeing another Sure, and when they're on stuff, coke, you get more than you hope you for. You get more than you hope. Some nights... It's really weird. Rock stars are so... You, they, here's the crazy thing. Like, you might call to do an interview and everybody seems so busy. Yeah, yeah. But in most of their life, they're completely bored doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. So I remember some nights, like, we'd be bored and he'd dress up in this giant, giant chicken outfit. Yeah. And we'd go down to Sunset Boulevard and he'd chase people in a chicken suit. For no reason. For no reason. No one would know this giant chicken that just chased him was Marilyn Manson. <laughs> <laughs> and he's all jacked up on blow. Yeah, yeah. Or we'd we'd have like four. I, I don't remember those DVDs or videos back right. then, but we'd watch like four vi movies in like ten minutes because they're so coked up. Uh, oh, yeah. right. oh, so, oh, just fast forwarding, just fast -forwarding to, to the good part. Yeah, exactly. Did, now, when you do that stuff, do do you gain? Do you did you do blow with him? It, you know, it's a great question. So my first night out with him, uh, 
he he had this CD case, which is what you did it on back then. Sure. Right? Really dates it. Yeah. But depending on what you, you have CDs right here, though. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and he said, do the dust. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if like was it Coke or was it Angel Dust. No. I don't know. Well, I was in, I was yeah, kind of yeah, naive. Yeah. But I wanted to fit. You know, I wanted to fit sure, in. I sure. wanted to not make them feel weird. <laughs> yeah. So I did the move where I kind of bent down, but I kind of blew it a little bit to get it off the tray and look like it went up my nose and it went all over the floor. It was a mess. <laughs> he knew though, right? Yeah. He's like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. They and you're like, I don't do this. It's a party fall. But eventually. Yeah. yeah, but eventually, like, yeah, I would do enough. I would do a little, a little bit. I mean, I to me, it was like coffee. You, it was you, like coffee. Oh, so you you didn't do too much to where right. you you know because I imagine you 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 strike me as uh, well. I don't know if it's introverted, but slightly neurotic. I can't imagine you in a panic situation. Yeah, totally neurotic. I'm not good with like psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those are the worst. Yeah. So, um, but I remember one night I was doing a little bit more with them, and I noticed I was losing my temper more often. I would lose my, I, w- I would be temperament, highly temperamental, edgy. edgy. Yeah. So I went to the guys. I'm like, you know what? I've been losing my temper a lot. I don't think maybe it's because of the Coke or something. Yeah. And one of the guys looks at me and goes, that's the best part. Yeah. And that was the last time I did it. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were using you as a clown. They were, <laughs> no, they, they, no, they were, they totally were. I remember, yeah. <laughs> I remember like a high point in my maturity came yeah. after I'd kind of done the game yeah. and I went over to Manson's birthday party and he had a giant sperm outfit and he said, will you dress up in the sperm outfit and dance around? Yeah, and I said no, yeah. and that was like a big moment for me that I wasn't there a clown anymore. <laughs> oh, look at you speaking up for yourself. <laughs> exactly. I will exactly. not put the sperm outfit on. So after that, you did the Jameson book. Um, yeah, after that, I did the the Motley Crue book. Right. And and by the way, we got to go back at some point to Luna Lounge because I want to talk about my impressions of you back there as well. But so let's make sure. Well, we let's get go. Back there. Well, let's start there because like because after once you did the Manson book, I, I was so amazed and slightly resentful that somehow or another this mousy little fuck had figured out a way to 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 make it i love it, <laughs> I, I, love it. I, I really had no idea i would be one of the people you resented well, i'm, I'm like proud a, to be amongst this small the, the, yeah. the, the powerful contingent well of, i always liked you but like there was right. all, there's always a slight distrust for journalists in general so right. like and maybe at that time i had you know i was sort of i, I don't know why i would have thought you ruined it but maybe i thought because you brought attention to it because it did get quite overwhelming after that yeah you know crazy. there were there were lines out the door and it became a little crazy but uh i don't think i really resented you i was just sort of amazed that you had figured this thing out like i never know what a writer's trajectory is and i don't know that i would have understood you know music journalists and that you know doing what you do is actually a, a good call and a good way to earn a living and also you know continue writing right you know to do those type of uh, ghost writing things i thought it was pretty impressive so i probably just resented you because of your success right no exactly exactly but yeah i remember you had hair right yeah I had and hair. you had a little, kind of little beard and wireframe glasses right. not, not as bold as the glasses you have now <laughs> right that the, the confidence you're exuding with your new frames that's exactly it <laughs> what, what, what were your impressions uh so no so i remember i remember going to that scene and you were like the the, yeah, the, the sweaty the master, but you're not see so you, you see yourself as sweaty but i see yourself as like kind of the master of that scene because you hosted the whole yeah the whole them, show yeah uh most most of them i think so a lot of them i guess and, i did and yeah. i remember after i did this story I, w- I decided i got so into comedy seeing this and and i'm you've talked about the show all, all the time so i don't need to go over what it is but so many incredible people were there like what you were doing was yeah. so so enjoyable i never liked stand-up comedy till i went to the luna lounge yeah. and saw those shows and i was recovering music i thought I went to the New York Times. I said, we got to cover comedy. Like, there are all these incredible, talented people. And I got so obsessed that I did an article afterward where I went undercover six months to try and make it as a comic. And I did one show at Luna, and that was, like, kind of the highlight of it. And I remember I was looking over my notes before I came here, and I said, 
you know, I'm terrified because in one phrase, like Mark Marin could eviscerate me, and, you know, <laughs> and that was my biggest fear was I, I said, I know I can do this. I know I got it handled. This is when you were going to Luna. Yeah. Yeah. This is when I was doing that one show. I was worried in a phrase he would just was eviscerate I, me. Was I even there? You were there. Yeah. yeah you were hosting. And I brought you up. Yeah. Well, that would have made me mad at you. Right. Uh, how'd you do? I did fine. Like I got, I got laughs. It was fine. I didn't bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, well, that's good. Yeah. I don't remember that article though. Uh, I'll, I'll get it to you. Yeah, I kind of oh. went undercover and did the whole because I realized like it was just the hardest way to make it in any kind of form of entertainment is is, is comedy because you're really you're used by the clubs who just use you to make money at pre-shows and uh-huh. I just it was fascinating. You had this quality then that you could kind of zelig a little bit and right. you were willing to take some risks in sort of a gonzo fashion to get your story. Right. So let's go through like what did you learn from the Manson experience? Sure. And um, uh, yeah, so from the Manson, I think he he really taught me how to write in a lot of ways in the sense that he, it had to be interesting. Uh, you didn't have to tell everything, just tell the interesting parts. He was also a writer, so he would, of all the people I worked with, he would call me up and suggest phrases because you always think the ghostwriter wrote it all. Right. But he'd call me up and he's like, I just thought of this metaphor like the blades of grass squished brown by the wheels of lawn chair furniture. Uh-huh. And I'd, I'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll get that uh, in there. Somewhere. I'll put <laughs> right. that in. Yeah. Here, thanks for your contribution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm trying to I'm trying to edit not, you know, nine hours of Coke talk. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And then there were there was, um, like, he, he had this thing, section of the book called The Rules, which are the rules for whether, uh, for rules for cheating, when, when it's not cheating doesn't count. So he might call from Spain and say, well, here's a reason why it's not cheating. It's not cheating if you have sex with her in another country, then you call your girlfriend in the States before before the time zone has caught up. Well, that's... Because yeah. that means it hasn't happened yet, so it's mm-hmm. okay. Or he'd call from South America and say, if, you have, if she has a tattoo of you on her, it's just common courtesy to have sex with her. <laughs> and is he still with the woman he was cheating on? Uh, no, no, he's gone through many <laughs> since then. <laughs> well, uh, that must have planted into your head, given the, the future that became you. I imagine that once you took the shift from rock and roll into Jenna Jameson's life, that must have had some impact on what became your future. Yeah, I, well, I think all along I was trying to put myself in the way of sex so I could have some, right? Yeah. So with Motley Crue, I just thought if I can go on the road with Motley Crue, I'm going to finally get sex. But and, you had no game. No no game. It was And, and literally, I mean, I really... I, I, would, can't, I still can't imagine you having game. Right. Thank you. <laughs> That's a, but it's the guy who's under, goes under the radar uh-huh. that, that does the best. But thank you. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't, I don't, if I came in, I look like a guy who had game. Like, that's probably the most unlikable guy you can imagine. Uh-huh. So, uh, so I'd, go, I'd go backstage and there'd be a road case. I'd get a stack of backstage passes during the show. Yeah. And I'd kind of hand them out to women. Right. And just... And then they they say thank you, and then they go f- try to fuck the star. Yeah, and I wouldn't figure. I'm, so I couldn't figure out when uh, when am I supposed to? How yeah, does the sex happen for yeah, me? Yeah, you were yeah. still a clown, weren't you? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you were the guy that you go find the hottest women, and you'd be like, "Hey, you want to come backstage?" And they're like, "Yeah, thank you, loser." Yeah, exactly. But yeah. but I didn't. Have, but also, it's like I didn't want to be the dick who's like, "Okay, if you get you get this, if you, you well know, me, right? Yeah, like that's you never did that. I could, I don't think I could ever do that. Could you? Huh. No, no, no. Yeah. I, uh, it, it just, it, it's, I can't, no, I, you know, I can't. Uh, I wouldn't get, there would be no pleasure in it. I wouldn't even be able to get, I would feel like such a shithead. I, I have a very hard time with, uh, like I, I require somewhat of a, you know, a, a, a slightly deeper connection than just, you know, using somebody to masturbate with or, you know, to, to you know, complete objectification. I'm not, I, I've never been that good at it. I need to feel like we're connecting somehow. Yeah. That's a nice thing, right? It is <laughs> yeah. a nice thing, but that can be problematic too, because, 
if you if you need that and you find it, but then right afterwards you're still sort of like, all right, well, I guess I'm done. Right. And and you've connected in that way with another person. Yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's lasting. And 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 the and I think the the results could be worse if the emotions are felt. And what do you mean by that? The results can be worse if the emotions are well, felt. Well, I mean like like because there's a, you know like. I guess there are some guys you would know better that that really just see the um, the conquest and the sex and the moving through, you know, having the sex and then being done with it. Well, if you put emotional connection in with that too, which I think happens a lot of times, anyways. I, I've in my life I've I found it very rare where you can have a clean kind of like sexual experience that doesn't carry some baggage afterwards. Right. Uh, maybe you can find it with those people, but you know, like I, you know, I know you've had some experience with the with swinging communities and whatnot. But but from in my experience, swingers are usually kind of just you know lumpy and game, you know, just <laughs> kind of like <laughs> uh, I, mine was different. But I'll fill you in later. If <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure lumpy you're... and game. That's the oh, the swinging handbook. Lumpy and game. <laughs> but uh, but no, I just found that like you know, it's very hard for me. To uh, to just completely sexualize, so right. so there and, and and it becomes a little more confusing like that. I, I, you know, I'm totally going to ask an inappropriate question, right. which is, I was thinking the you know the eating issues, the steam yeah. issues, the anger, all, all those issues. I I thought, and I don't know if you've written about this or talked about. It, I thought like it must play out in your sex life in some way where there's you want to some submission or dominant dominant stuff well i don't like i'm still sort of like figuring some of that stuff out like the sex issues you know in codependency and sort of love addiction and you know i've never i've i know compulsive sex addicts and i know uh porn addicts and i know you know i know guys that have you know i've dabbled in all that stuff but it it never made my life unmanageable right. which is really the 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 determining factors right. deciding that but i understand it right so yeah sure y- y- if you have a an addictive personality, it's going to find its way to, to whatever it is. You know, it's going to have a preference, but if you deny it that, it'll right. find the other one. But I was, th- I was thinking more separate from the addiction stuff with you. I'll ask it again if there, but there, there may be, maybe a dead end question. I'm so curious though, with, you know, there's a lot of that, the shame that you, yeah. you have and, the, and then there's the anger. And I right. feel like, does that come on some odd way? I don't, like, like? I, I don't know that I've, I've explored it thoroughly. Right. There's there's parts of me that thinks well maybe I should explore that a little more. <laughs> right, right. But then there's a fear of that. Well then do I want to become that guy? Right. Do you, you know what I mean? Like you know I'm okay with sex. Right. You know could it be amazing if you know if I did a little more? Uh, uh, you know if I found somebody who was willing to 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 get choked out or spank around a bit, <laughs> right. maybe. Right. But then like you know it's a slippery slope, right? I you know what I think it's not what you're doing; it's why you're doing it. You know, if you are no, but but the, but that's you're backloading that. Oh, go I mean, ahead, when, tell me. But I mean, when you're in it, right? That you know, if you keep if you keep raising the stakes of of fulfilling your desire and opening your mind right. or your experience, that you, you're eventually going to hit a wall if you have an addictive personality. Yeah, for sure. If you, yeah, it's yeah, it's like it's like some people can have a drink or try a drug and it's fine. Other people, it's going to be a slippery slope and they're going to go off the edge. But let's that's go. Let's, let's, let's go let's back, go back to, to stuff. Well, no, we're going to get there. Okay. So. So okay, so you're 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 a dweeby guy who's not <laughs> Thank you. Who, who's not great at talking to women, right? And now you've got to follow Jenna Jameson around. Yeah, and again, I thought if it didn't work with Motley Crue, it's definitely going to work with Jenna Jameson. Right? You must have gotten some nothing, nothing, not like, from her, but from someone. I know. The- I remember being in a limo, and there are all these kind of other porn stars, and they're all making out. I'm just sitting there watching them, thinking, how do I get in on this? Like, I didn't know how to get in on it. Uh-huh. I, I don't even know today how I maybe I would. They were all just kind of making out. I was like, oh, I don't want to get my male energy all over their female. 
kind oh, of oh, so you were, breakout session. You, you were like uh, immediately codependent to the situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They call it pathological accommodation, where yeah. you're like, so don't want to make anyone else uncomfortable, so you just put yourself in the back. Just disappear. And, yeah, exactly. You, we're your invisible guy. Yeah, which which is the recipe for being a journalist, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but what was your experience in in, in the porn life? What did you find out about porn? Yeah, you know, so first of all. It was fascinating because, again, this is not a surprise, but they'd get together and talk and they would all have, you know, why, you know, just in so many abuse stories. And I know it's the cliche and people try to pretend like it's not. But, for example, Jenna Jameson would do interviews, would do Howard Stern. He'd say, you must have had some kind of abuse in your background. She'd say, no, never. But, of course, when we talked, yeah, she did. She just didn't want to be that, that cliche. So that was really a common story. Uh, obviously, the, the So the publicly, stuff. a lot of them would not cop to it, but privately it was there. Yeah, because they didn't want to be that cliche right and uh and and uh well they didn't want to be there's something about the image of the the sexual the sexual object which is their job as uh not necessarily of of having some power and not being a victim right publicly right yeah and i suppose you know i suppose it would ruin the fantasy for for guys if they some guys if you thought about that (laughs) yeah yeah that's probably (laughs) and the funny thing too again it was kind of like she was the number one porn star at that time, so I'd walk around at the airport and think, man, all these guys have probably masturbated. Sure. It's fascinating. I one time went up to a porn star. Right. And uh, like I didn't know quite how to do it. I don't remember which one it was, but it was before Jenna. It was uh, early on when I, when I would watch it. You know, I never, was never a guy who rented porn, so like, you know, I'd see clips and this and that or give you know get these DVDs or whatever. But uh, there was one that, I, I forget her fucking name, but I saw her at the airport you know, with her husband, who was also in it, or, or her her uh, guardian, or whatever. Right. And I, they I call had, them suitcase pimps. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, you know, I had to say something. Right. I, I didn't, and all I came up with was like, uh, "Hey, I, I really like your work," right. which is just saying like, "I, <laughs> I, I masturbated yeah, to you last a lot, night." A lot, a <laughs> lot. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. You can't say like, "God," when you take it in your mouth and then put it. You know, you can't like go yeah. into detail. <laughs> right, I guess right. you could because they. They they certainly feel that stuff all the time. Right. Well, it's funny because one of the most surreal experiences of my life was sitting with her and she was showing a movie and forwarding past the sex to show me the acting. No. Swear to God. Was she proud of it? Yeah, she was proud of it. Oh. She was, thought it was really good. It was like really a sweet thing. Was it good? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, was it good? Good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I, wrote, I got, well, I get, when I do the books, I really immerse myself, mm-hmm. you know, with Manson, I like whatever playing on one of his albums and yeah. with her uh i decided they wanted me to write a porn script for her um so uh so i based it on ambrose beer short story which if, if nobody nobody's gonna know who watched it <laughs> but it won the avn for like best video or best whatever oh really yes yeah, so i felt like did you get one uh no it would have been awesome though they, right? don't, they don't give writers they awards give it for to the writers <laughs> no but i always knew i had a backup career uh, of course you do. A lot of yeah. dudes do that. Michael Bloomfield, the amazing guitar player, was strung out on heroin. He used to do Mitchell Brothers uh, soundtracks. Yeah. Did Jerry Stahl do that stuff too? Or I'm sure he did. Yeah. Did he? I did he I script pornos? I don't know I don't if remember. he did. I, I'll ask him. Yeah. yeah. We could call him later. Great. I mean, he's done just about everything. Exactly. So it's it's safe to assume that uh, that was probably part of his story. All right. So here was the big shocker. So when the game comes, I had it. I was looking for it. I don't know what happened to it. Right. But what I had heard was, I, I saw the book and I and I got what it was and I was like, all right, Neil's doing another investigative thing. But then then I got started hearing bits and pieces of like, no, no, he's like, he's out there speaking, like he runs workshops. I'm like, whoa, wait, 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 Neil Strauss, Neil Strauss, and they're like, yeah, yeah, he's like this guy, like this like pussy magnet. This- <laughs> pickup artist he's running these workshops and he lives in a mansion in malibu and there's women all around i'm like whoa wait this is the same neil strauss 
Did that happen? Yeah, but I lo- but see, you see it like I see it. You know, I'll do like a, a news show and there'll be like, and here's the biggest douchebag in the world who who just wrote the manual for men with no, but you see it how I see it, which is I was just a nerdy right. writer dude who somehow went immersive in this community, wrote a book about it. And then, uh, and, and again, I really got into it in the book. I didn't, it wasn't just sort of detached. Uh, well, this then, was, well but then of later, course you did because this was like what you've been waiting for. It's what I've been waiting. It's what basically like Motley Crue couldn't do it. Jenna Jameson couldn't do it. But these kind of nerdy, weirdly dressed guys somehow, yeah, somehow did it. Yeah. yeah, and and you were, I imagine, revered and demonized. Yeah, it was the weird. It's the yeah. It's a weird. I still don't. I still don't. Even ten years. Ten years. So I just got a call from Nightline. Yeah, and they wanted to do a piece on. They're like, we want to write about it, this pickup workshop, and then talk to you. I'm like, no, this, this book's ten years old. I don't want to talk about it. It's just, well, it, it well, doesn't you, go away. Well, what happened? Like, you, you know, walk me through it. Like, you know, uh, not assuming I read the book, right. or didn't okay. read the book. Okay. Like, I'll walk, walk me through it. it like a slaw pitch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my, my name is Neil Strauss, and I'm a sex and love addict. <laughs> <laughs> what happened what was it like what <laughs> happened and what's it like now Neil the funny thing at my first meet slaw meeting yeah. there was a woman there I thought was kind of attractive sure, so I course. didn't want to say I was a sex addict because it might ruin my chances uh, yeah, with her. of course well, um, you're not alone with right. that okay so um, oh, so so what happened was the book that I did the Motley Crue book with yeah. uh, called me up and he said hey I found out about that there's this community of guys online yeah. they don't have money looks or fame and they're exchanging this knowledge on how to meet, attract, seduce women, and they've got it kind of figured out to a science. Uh-huh. And he's like, I want you to take their information and put it into a how-to book for me. And I said, listen, I write for the New York Times. I'm a serious writer. Yeah. That's not something I'm interested in, but can you give me the URL? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I sort of started, started reading this stuff, and like there were all these posts with guys with weird names of mystery and form handle yeah. and uh, candor, we're, all these weird names, but they yeah. would describe like blow by blow everything they did. I'm like, oh my God, this is it. Because when I was writing for the New York Times, I'd go to these shows, uh, concerts, you go to every concert and I'd try and meet these women and I'd have tickets to the next school concert and they'd come with me and just always end up in friend zone no matter what I did. Right, right. So I felt like these guys had the secret to finally, Yeah, you, you were going to get some. Right. And you, yeah. had, didn't, you hadn't had a girlfriend or anything? I know what would do if I, if I slept with someone, I would make them try my best to make them my girlfriend so that I could keep, right. stay with somebody for yeah. a few years and not be so lonely. Right. Maybe like a couple of year, you know, a few years dry spell between that. So you go into this and you see these guys got the answer. So you pitch a piece where you're a book where you're going to be among them. No, I no, I didn't dare tell anyone that I was into it. So, okay. so this is your highbrow, man. You're New York Times. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I did was uh, I found out that one of this guy, guy named Mr. is doing his first workshop uh-huh. and a workshop is he meets you out in quote the field in a club or a bar and he shows you how to approach women then has you do it. How so, many guys are involved in this? You mean how like many guys? Like when you go to a workshop, is it like there's 20 guys sitting it's at like, the end of a bar Why this one guy goes, watch? It was like six guys. Okay. But some of them now are like 20 guys. So the whole thing's insanely weird. Uh, so so it was $600 or $500, I forget which. I put the money in an envelope. Yeah. Terrified to meet this guy and terrified that anyone will find out I work for the New York Times. Right. Uh, and then I remember we were at the, the, I guess the Standard was the cool place, then right. the bar there. And Scott Bayo was there with this beautiful woman. Yeah. And he walked in, started like doing magic tricks. And next thing I know, Scott Bayo turns to me and goes, you know, is this a magic trick or is he stealing my girlfriend? Uh-huh. I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. This guy can walk. I, just anyone who could talk to one is my hero. And this guy's walking in, like stealing, a, you know, a semi, you know, a celebrity's girlfriend. I'm like, 
I, that, that was it. I was done. It was like, who was like the that magic first hit tricks? of crack. Mystery was the Coke did nothing for me, but watching mystery do this thing was my Coke. Was he, he was the one doing magic. He was doing magic tricks. So that was his way in. He's like, look at what, okay. Yeah. But he, he doesn't like, look what I can do. He'll be talking about like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, it's kind of like this. And he would do it in a way that wasn't braggy or show off. Right, right. Right. And you know, but and he then he knew magic. Yeah. And he'd make them beg. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, Oh, I, Oh, okay. If you insist kind of, yeah. Right. So magic was his kind of way in or his way to, to sort of like, upstage everybody uh-huh and uh and did he get his ass kicked by scott Bayo? no no he didn't he got the he got the woman's phone number and that, oh and that was it and okay that, yeah. see guys see what just happened right that's what and, and you were like do i need to learn magic i, I did learn magic i could probably do table <laughs> magic as a background i can read minds make things levitate all that really really and you were you were hooked like my reality was blown yeah yeah and then what happens uh so then um so then I just tried to start to hang around him as much as I could. Uh, and eventually he's like, oh, I need a wing for my workshops. It's so weird, man. It's so surreal, right? Yeah. It's surreal. So he's like, I need a wing for my workshops. I'm like, oh, I want to do that just to learn what you're doing. Is he an attractive guy, this guy? Uh, it depends on how you see him. He's tall. He's like six feet tall. Uh-huh. But it's funny that we go to looks. I don't think it has anything to do with looks. No, no, of course but not. Some but people, I mean, but some like, people find him attractive. But like, you know, would you classify him as like a guy who was once like you? Is this like the back of a comic book? Is it like Charles Atlas kicks in in your face? Oh, he, no, he's, su- he's super nerdy. Like if he's not going out and putting on the whole show, it's sort of like long, greasy hair and a ponytail, right. computer nerd guy. Right. But then okay. you go out and, you know, really dress up and act tall and confident. But and 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 become that other guy. Okay, was, okay, that was an illusion. Okay, so he asked you to be his wingman, right? <laughs> so it's so immature. I mean, again, like I I got so caught up and it's ridiculous to talk about it. So why do you feel ashamed of it? Yes, <laughs> okay. like I, I really I do. Okay, I mean it's embarrassing, right? All right. Like my biggest opportunity in life was not when you know John Perel of the New York Times called me and said, "Will you write for us?" It was when Mystery asked me to be his wingman. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. But obviously, it spoke to some some deep need inside me to finally really get acceptance. Well, there's nothing like you know, getting sex is is exciting. Yeah, it and is. it means a lot. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you for validating that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so then we started traveling around the world doing workshops, uh, and eventually, I started to get good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I st- found all the other guys who I read about in that in that community and kind of befriended them all and learned their different tips and tricks. And I guess, and I think the surreal thing happened was about maybe like a year and a half or two years into it, they did a survey in this weird world of pickup artists of the top pickup artists. And I was number one and mystery was number two. The student has surpassed the master. Oh, really? It's such a, it's like, I mean, it's a fascinating, that's why it's, why it's such a weird book. It's such a fascinating, bizarre story. So Grasshopper was going to go out to the West on his own now. Yeah. And then, and then at some point before this, I'd realized this yeah. community is so insane. I got to write about this and, and it's got to be a book. And did um, like and you pitched the book, uh, or yeah. you wrote it on spec? Uh, no, I, my publisher was this woman Judith Regan, who's fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah, I think I I know who she she's is. She's great. She's like the Medici of publishers. Right. She, so I would just sit with her. I was telling her about it, and she, and I told her book. She's like, let's do it. Yeah. She's the kind of person who goes off her intuition. No pitch. I mean, right. no pitch. She just right. said, that's cool. Let's do it, and that was it. And she had done your other books. She'd done my other books. Yeah. So you, she knows you can sell books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She knew I could write, and she and but I'd never done one on my own before. Now, so this book was sort of a half memoir, half investigative journalism. The game was exactly, but you were you were in over your head. But I was in over. Yeah, there's a little kind of a Donnie Brasco element to it, where I didn't know my journalist or my uh, in the I mafia. I love that movie. Yeah, it's great. It's like I, I think it's an unsung movie. I think it it's really a is. great movie. So, all right, so you're in, and now you're the number one guy, right? And, and pe- now, how how much are you getting laid? Um, I mean, 
I mean, I remember like it was my birthday, and I, 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 oh, I, don't, I know what to brag about is unseemly. No, you, it, it, <laughs> right. you can. Is, I, you maybe not frame it as bragging, but like at my lowest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's a humble brag, right? <laughs> yeah. At my lowest. No, I mean, I think, I think it was such that you would sort of decide each night, am I going to kind of call someone over or go out with someone I've met, or am I going to go out and kind of meet new people? Uh, or it was weird. It was like a skill set you would work on. It's like, it wasn't enough to have sex. It was like, okay, how can I kind of turn the, getting a threesome into a science? And right. how can I, you would work through all this stuff. And at this point, we're all living together in a house too. With, we were all living together in a house. I just did an article for Rolling Stone and Courtney Love. She moved into the house. Yeah. So we had a house with maybe six pickup artists and Courtney Love. What? Yeah. It's, it's like, sounds a reality show, like a reality show. And what was she doing? Uh, she like, I, I think she was having money issues and hiding from paparazzi and she lived with us. And so these guys would be in the, uh, in the living room doing a pickup workshop yeah and courtney love would come like careening through topless <laughs> and for some guys that was their first sight of a female breast really yeah oh so those were the kind of guys that were coming yeah yeah it was just like sad desperate men who were lonely and wanted to figure and wanted to know what the trick was it was a mix of a lot of guys who just came out of divorces oh okay. uh, and felt like just bitter, angry, broken-hearted guys. <laughs> For example, yeah, uh, broke probably. <laughs> yeah, spending their last six hundred dollars. Speaking from experience, yeah. And and uh, some some were some were guys who were really good-looking, cool guys, but they didn't know it inside. They didn't have that esteem. Other guys, a lot of uh, people who were over as exchange students from somewhere else and just felt out of place in the culture. Mm. So a lot a lot of guys like that. But did you get the sense that any of them were really looking for relationships or they were just looking to... I mean, I guess that's where it got sort of blurry for you is that you somehow annihilated your ability or your capacity on top of whatever psychological issues that you come to grips with in this new book, The Truth. You you sort of annihilated uh, the ability to, to have any sense of what that would be. I think so. I mean, I think when you're in it, Everyone, no one was like, I just want to have, nobody just want to have sex with women for the rest of their lives. Very few people. People wanted to have a relationship. They wanted to be able to pick the person and choose the person. Nobody was like, we want to be pickup artists and just have one night stand. Really? That was a rare, that was a rare breed of person. Yeah. Uh-huh. Even when I was doing it, I was like, I just want when I really meet someone, I'm really attracted to them to be able to not blow it. So oh. it was never like, I'm not so in a relationship. But, but, oh, but, but, but wait, there's but, a but, big, big but, okay. leap between that, you know, uh, Saying when I meet the one that I want, right. that I'm not going to blow it, and like, what's the craft of threesomes? Right. Yeah, yes. Yes. Exactly. It was like <laughs> I want to do that, but a little bit later because I'm having fun right now. <laughs> right. But but the big divide was like a divide existed in your mind between men and women. So the real problems with it were objectification, obviously, and manipulation. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, in other words, if I saw a woman, their word was sarging. So sarging is their word. They, they had their own language. Right. So if I saw a woman, like I would have to sarge. I could be in a business meeting. And be that I would perform it all. For what does her. it mean? Uh, Sarging was like going out to like pick up or seduce. Mm-hmm. So it became, the approach, the, yeah. the first f- f- the first step. Um, and I think Sarging was just the 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 uh, the whole going out to the whole thing with Sarging. Oh, okay. The I guess seduction process. You're going out to Sarge. Yeah. Right. So okay. So the, you 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 had at some point realized in the midst of all this living in a house full of guys figuring out how to get women right uh that that you might not be respecting women that <laughs> how yes. long did that take yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, it took me longer it's the funny thing about writing a book is you read it and you realize pretty early on uh but for sure it all all the, it all combusted even within the book like uh all, all these fake alpha males because you're trying to be an alpha male and it's nothing worse than anyone who can seize the world as alpha and beta male. So all these fake alpha males living in a house started fighting with each other. One guy slept with some other guy's ex and that guy tried to kill him. A mystery. The book begins with mystery trying to commit. So 
begins with Mr. Trying to commit suicide over a woman. So the whole thing became just the immaturity of it. Sounds like you guys underestimated the power of women. <laughs> or under, underestimate. I think we underestimated <laughs> the, I, I th- yeah, I your think, own vulnerability. Yeah, your own vulnerability, and uh, um, that somehow you're going to somehow become a better person through 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 whatever. Or was it really a better person, or just a winning person in the in the eyes of what masculinity has been defined as? Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. I love, like, I think there, I love, it's a, it's a nuanced world and that's, that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly the problem with it. Yeah. Well, so what did your bottom look like? Um, oh, I think the bottom for me was, uh, was just living in that house, all the guys fighting each other. One guy trying to commit suicide. I met somebody actually who was in Courtney Love's band who I really had this, really had this huge crush on. Yeah. And, uh, and I had to sort of get real to have a real relationship with her. And she was like, she said the wisest words, which we, like you were, even though Mark Barron doesn't think so, she was like, you're cool all along. You didn't need these guys to show you anything. You No, I, I yeah. have I have no issue with you. I'm just judging <laughs> know, in, in the context of, you know, of how you saw yourself in a way. So, it's, you, so, you know? it's so true. And 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 the, the weird thing is like, yeah, I bust your balls a little bit, but, you know, I you and I are more alike than we are different. Right. And- because I, I, you know, I, I sort of process through a lot of this stuff in terms of, you know, well, you know, I did a bit on it in my last special about what kind of man am I really, you know, because, you know, you judge yourself against what you think are alpha guys and, you know, you, you're insecure in certain ways. And even if you do find somebody that loves you for who you are, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to you know make you feel better about yourself. Right. It could be the worst thing in the world because then you're sort of like, you know, I don't like me. How can you like me? And then yes. you fucking implode that thing. And people are attached to their own lower opinion of themselves if something rocks that they, they for some reason they want to hold on to well, for reality. some reason it's it's who you are you know like for you know for whatever reason it's the most consistent disposition you know yeah and it happened a long time ago because of some emotional deprivation that was done on behalf of your parents and that's exactly what you know with a retrospect now that i realized what the game was was just if i was to, if the game was me overbearing dominant you know, neurotic mom having a total fear of women and feeling like I needed to have some sort of power or control over the situation. Mm-hmm. So it had nothing even to do with sex. It was just about self-esteem and uh, fear. But sex is good. Like, the truth of the matter is, no matter what your psychological issues are, like, when you do get to have sex, you know, there's still very little difference between that immediate experience when it's happening from however old you are now to when you were 13. I mean, right. the stakes might be higher. It might be weirder than you might have thought. It might not be the best situation. But that moment where you're like, oh, I'm having sex, that's pretty constant. Right. I mean, like that's what shooting up heroin yeah. felt like, right? So in right. the moment, that's fine. In the very moment when the needle enters your arm and you feel the rush go to your heart, that but, feels good. That's right. But oh, yeah, I guess that's true. And, and I, I sort of stepped out of the addiction model is that, you know, it can, you, 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 it does eventually stop working. Yeah. And, and, and oh, go ahead. And you hate yourself. Right. And, and if you're just having sex, it's pleasurable and it's nice and it feels good and you enjoy people. That's great. But if you're doing it to fill some hole, that's the addiction. It's if you're doing it to, you're doing it to fill some hole inside or just because right. you like it. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, it's weird. 
weird. I, you know, I, I don't know ultimately how clear I am on all this stuff because, like, I still deal with this stuff all the time. You know, I'm in a relationship now, and right. I've, n- I've not been able to sustain a relationship. I don't have children. I've definitely had, you know, sexual issues and emotional issues uh, for my entire life. It's the one part of my life which is, you know, still tricky and difficult, even with self awareness and some practical work. You know, but it really does come down to cognitive behavior. You know, uh, cognitive. Um, choices uh, after a certain point. Do, do you want to talk about what I learned? Because that's what I'm no, the most what I'm, excited I'm, about. I'm here, Great, I'm here You're to talk right about. There. Great. But 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 what I wanted what I want to like make sure everyone understands right. is that the game sold millions of books. Right. Uh, you know, it propelled you into a reluctantly into a career that you probably didn't see that you were going to have. It it, it characterized you culturally in a very specific way that some people uh, might find hucksterish, other people might find obnoxious, but there there was enough men out there that thought you you know you were, you know, a portal to some wizardry necessary to them that it validated you. And uh, so in retrospect, even though we have the truth here, the new book, um, y- you know, you did make a deal with the devil. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the way I, I'll tell you the way I kind of see it, but go ahead. No, but I mean, like, and now you know, uh, you, you know, you're you're negotiating your way out through personal enlightenment. That that that's not the way I see it, but I I, I see that narrative. Okay. Um, and maybe maybe it is right. I got. I'll think it through. So here's <laughs> so here's what, here's here's the way. I mean, the way I, the way I kind of see it was uh, but it was weird. So when the game came out, like I just thought. It's just a weird, it's a book I wrote about. It's like any, any other book. Mm-hmm. And then I remember my phone started ringing that day with guys calling like, hey, you know, there's this one girl I met. Can you help me? Literally the day it came out. Guys you know? Guys I didn't know. They looked at my number. I was listed. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and that's the moment I got my number unlisted. Yeah. And again, I kind of kept, I did the book tour. I was ready to do the next book. And then like some What guy, was the next book? Um, the next book was, I'm trying to remember. Um, so you were out? Oh, I was going to do a graphic novel with this Bernard Chang okay. illustrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was out. And then these guys came up to me and they said, hey, you should, uh, and I didn't really even have a website, no website address. And these guys came up to me and they said, you should, um, and they were marketers and they're like, you should uh, you know, do this teaching thing. Make the manual. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really reluctant. I made him jump through a bunch of hoops and said, it's not what I did. And eventually I let them kind of take over and did it. Oh, right. That's I, a, so it wasn't your fault at all. It wasn't my fault. No, no. But I remember like, I remember like, I remember the day like it sold out in half an hour. The manual, the, the, the game. What was it called? The game. The, oh, no, rules. Of the, I, rules of the game. Rules right. of the game was like my public. It's weird. My publisher said, "Let's do this how-to thing." Yeah, and I said, "Only do." I'm a storyteller. It's weird. I've just totally resisted. It's. I've almost compartmentalized that side of my life. Yeah, the, the, yeah. You, you have. You have uh, compartmentalized the actual Faustian deal. <laughs> yes, but I, so I felt like it, I said, "I'll do this how-to book if half of it can be stories; the other half will be how-to." But what I think is nice. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Go ahead, tell go. me. Show me. Show me my own hypocrisy. <laughs> Throw it in my face. It's not hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It was how you can live with yourself. Right. It's not hypocrisy. Explain it. Explain it. I, I can't explain it, but what, I, what I'm hearing is like, it's not really what I do, but if we can integrate a little bit of what I do into your agenda yes. as well and make a little cash, let's do that. But I don't want to sell out completely. Let, let, <laughs> let, let me tell some stories because I'm a writer. <laughs> That's like the best interview ever. Oh, man. It's really, that, that, if, I, I mean, outside of the cash because I don't think like that I you don't do a book for... I don't know. It's probably all right. I don't fucking know. Well, no, but no, 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 you're no, so, but, but you're so right. It totally, you like, you trick yourself into doing of these course. things. Yeah. You, I mean, that's how selling out works for people <laughs> with integrity, but <laughs> you have to, 
but uh, but you know whether or not you saw the profit end of it anyways right. like when you when you are and I've said this before I mean you don't really make big money until you make someone else big money and and you were in that position like right. your publisher you know knew they all knew you know the marketers and the publisher they knew it was like almost like a guarantee no you're so right I mean it really is a forking path that I, I think about it all the time you're, yeah. I mean you're so right I, there's a book called Life is Elsewhere by Balan Kundera yeah and this guy has a choice between becoming a total hack and being an artist right and he chooses the hack road because of his mother issues and the pressures of the time right and I always think of that's the forking path and I've tried to keep one foot on both sides of the forking path but yeah. now it's getting too wide that I can't straddle them anymore and that's where it was when you did the rules of the game right. and that's when after that yeah, it's kind of where it is now in a way uh-huh. Yeah, I just feel like I tried to like, okay, I'll do this stuff, but I'm still a serious writer and journalist. I'm still writing for Rolling Stone. It doesn't count that I do this. So this stuff. book, this new book, the truth is, is, is this is your, this is your redemption. I don't think of it that way. I hate to think of it that way because I don't think it. No, but, but, but tell but, me how you see it. Maybe you're right. Maybe you have a better perspective. No, I don't have any perspective. Yeah. But but you, you know, you had a, a, a cathartic, existential uh, crisis of self around where you were in the world and also you hit a personal wall and bottom where you realized that you were you were empty and your integrity had been drained from this fucking thing that you know the sex addiction and the publishing industry and 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 your requirements uh and what was required of you and this is your sort of like I have to redeem myself for myself yes this is I got to tell you I really mean it. This is the best narrative because you're, you're, I'm outside myself. You see it better, but there's, there's a press narrative that's totally not true. This, this is the, I, I really want to listen back to this because you understand this book better than I am. No, because like, you know, when you are consumed you know, and, 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 you, you know, not necessarily greed, but, but, you know, when you're consumed in something that is as powerful as sex addiction and it's your bread and butter. Yeah. Yes, because I, when I was in rehab, they said everyone was acting, adding up what their sex addiction has cost them. Yeah. You know, they're like, it cost me my home. And I you're spend, like, it got me my home. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is exactly it. They're like, I spent a quarter million dollars on prostitutes. I'm like, I made a quarter million dollars off this book. You know, like, you know, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Right. You were not the sympathetic case at the uh, at the sex addiction meeting. Right. Like, I'll tell you, man, if it weren't for my sex addiction, I would not have my house or my car right. or the opportunities that I have in right. life. I'm in such a bad place you guys <laughs> right exactly <laughs> all right so so okay so the, the the rules of the game come out and and now you're overwhelmed i would imagine with uh with that type of notoriety and i imagine it's it's quite uh uh conflicting and also painful i would assume yeah and yeah it, it's yeah it's weird i sort of became yeah i would read about myself in the media and be like is that I sort of became a. I just feel like the game and. What was that, your mother saying? Uh, my oh, my mother. <laughs> my mother was cool with everything until I went to sex addiction rehab to get better. Then she had a problem with stuff. Oh really? Because like yeah. you, you know what you lost control. I don't understand. I, no. You know. be, uh, yeah. Okay. Let's. Oh, because then you were identified as a, a sex addict. Or? I think it. She. She. She really said like so. People have affairs. Big deal. Like no. Like you know nothing's Did she wrong read with the you. Book? Uh, the, the, this book, this book, no, the last one. I think she has no problem with me having casual sex. The whole problem was she didn't want me having relationships. Huh. So the whole, if you go back to she the problem, didn't know that she didn't know that. Right. But she wanted her relationship with me to be the primary one in my life. This is what you learned, uh, through your recovery. Right. 
Okay, so what happens? I hate that word. Recovery sounds like I hate. This, okay, yeah, this is but, what but, happens. No, no, recovery is fine, but it's got so many. It, I, recovery is a fine word. Well, no, well, let's let's uh, unload it from right. uh, from what it means in the context of um, psychological treatment. Yeah, but, yeah but, I'll tell you the way the way I see it is when I found out like what are what's all the pro- like what's all the programming that I'm operating on and how can I change that program? Well, yeah, how you know, what essentially was it in your childhood that 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 created the emotional deprivation that that made you seek uh uh, uh you know uh self-completion through these various ways that were dangerous. Exactly. Good great way to say it. <laughs> Good. So so what did happen? What you met the girl from Hole but uh, or from her new right. band, and then and then we uh, had a relationship. But of course, in my mind, she was turning into my mom, so I had to break up with her. But in reality, I was probably just making her. And you know what I mean? She might do one thing that reminds. Have you my read mom. the Fantasy Bond? Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, Firestone. Yeah. Yes. Great book. So when you say you know turning into her, whether you projected it or not, what because you 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 end up in that same relationship every time, one right. way or the other. Exactly. Because you know you, whatever you have that interfaces with what they have is exactly what you grew up with, or or what drives you into the pathological self parenting that creates the self loathing. Yeah. Okay. Th- yeah. There's a, there's a line in the book that says when it's love at first sight run in the other direction you know all that's happened is your child your wounds have met their wounds yeah trauma bonding yeah trauma bonding what what were those attributes what what in in terms of identifying the uh, emotional manipulation of your mother what was it right i'll, I'll never forget like there's that moment where life change and maybe the equivalent of mystery <laughs> picking up scott Bale's girlfriend yeah which again is the most pathetic epiphany in the world is uh is i was sort of uh <laughs> <laughs> right, that was the moment my life changed when Mystery picked up Scott Bale's girlfriend. Um, oh boy, you're gonna tell your grandkids that <laughs> exactly. So I was sort of in. I was being really. By the way, I was really cynical about the whole rehab sex addiction thing. When I checked in, they said anyone who masturbates is a sex addict. Anyone who watches porn is a sex addict. There are some groups, not this one, that say anyone who has premarital sex is mm-hmm. a sex addict. Mm-hmm. So basically, everyone listening would be a sex addict mm-hmm. by someone's definition. Well, culturally, it's 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 actually. This very weird and unspoken malignancy that uh, that the the access to to pornography is is completely annihilating millions of people's ability to maintain intimacy. I believe that. Right. You. I think that there's sort of the swing states of compulsion that like if you already have that compulsion, it's really easy to dive into it. Right, so, so but I that's think what I mean. Making, access, yeah. yeah. It was better when you had to go to the gross store, right? <laughs> but you would still, you would still masturbate just as much that one magazine. That's as fine. You went to all yeah, the... But still, you know, like you know, it's, right. that's that, that seems better. And the variety, I mean, yeah, yeah. But it, versus channel flipping between fifty women for one orgasm, it's insane. It's fucking it, nuts, dude. Yeah, there's a lot of writing. I mean, it really must rewire your brain. Oh yeah, the, but, you know, I, I, yeah. I mean, I track my entire perception of sex to seeing porn too young and it, and it, it fucking hobbled me man what did you see that did that i uh, i when i was like 14 we found a betamax of um deep throat and the opening of misty beethoven right and then when i was 15 we actually had fake ids and went to porn theaters but the assumption at that age especially for a socially awkward you know sexually awkward kid that i was was that that's the way it's done right and anything below that or that doesn't happen that way uh, is not good sex. So, you know, I was fucked from the get-go. Yeah, because they, they call it, that's your attraction template. Like, you, it sets a template in your mind right. for what sex is supposed to be. Like, right. your first experience molds right. you. Right. It creates those neural connections that don't exist. Right. 
So, Wait, so you did a lot of research. Yeah, <laughs> it's fascinating. And, and, I and think, it's all in the truth. You went scientific, you went uh, uh, spiritual, you went uh, cognitive, you went uh, s- straight up psychological. Yeah, and entered all these alternative communities of, of uh, alternative relationships. But so the moment, the moment that my life kind of changed was mm-hmm. I was sitting there I'm really being cynical about this with this, what I thought was this kind of castrating therapist who didn't want men to have any sex at all. You projected that. Yes. Uh (laughs) And uh, she started, you do something called a timeline, which is all the high points, all the big moments of your life. Yeah. And she looked at it and she saw this pattern and she said, you know why you can't be in a relationship? I'm like, no. And she goes, because your mom wants to be in a relationship with you. And that was, I just felt this cold wind blew and it seemed so preposterous yet something in me just sort of like, recognize this and this is the moment yeah and then she goes then there's a name for this and it's called emotional incest and i was like what the fuck yeah yeah keep talking you're helping me so so and the idea of this of emotional incest is this is that when your parents when your need your you exist to live to uh to serve your parents needs versus your parents serving your needs i had the same childhood I, i i knew that I mean, I knew that because I looked at, I had an emotionally absent dad yeah. like yours, right? And then a mom who's overplayed by her problems to take care of mine. Yeah. So it's that one clue of it is where you grow up feeling sorry for a parent. Right. Did you? What I felt was um, uh, a loyalty. Yes. That was unnatural. Yeah. Uh, a loyalty to their emotional states. Exactly. So their their emotional needs become come before yours. Sure. And what happens- They when, use you. Yeah, and you're used. Yeah. And and uh, and you just don't realize it because it seems normal. In fact, the the sort of um, the thing about it is where if someone's where where something's sort sort of physical abuse or yelling at someone or criticizing, well, we know that makes you us can feel identify bad. it. It's like the difference. It's like you know, like alcoholics. When you don't right. drink, you're not you're not you know that you're that's all, almost of the problem. Right. But when it's vague, or what was your abuse? Sexual? No. Did they hit you? No. Right. It's actually more insidious. And it's empowering. Because when you're daddy's little girl or mommy's little man, mm-hmm. you know, or you're kind of emotionally smarter than them, you feel empowered. So it feels good. So you don't even recognize it as abuse. But you end up with no sense of self. No sense of self. Yes. And in fact, myself, Robert Greene, who wrote The Art of Seduction, you know, Tucker Max, who's kind of the, you know, frat boy writer mm-hmm. guy. We all had kind of, you know, depressed or narcissistic moms and didn't have that sense of self. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been very aware of the project of completing myself. Yeah. But I, it wasn't until I read Firestone within the last year that, you know, that because of something my therapist passively mentioned about the fantasy bond, that I was not able to, to, to that one piece that I got from Firestone that blew my mind is that um, there's no one, if you're uncomfortable because of your parents' emotional abuse, you don't know as a kid you know, you assume your parents are good, so there's no one to blame but yourself. Right. And right. And, th- and that happens at a very young age. So your attempt to self-parent is really, uh, the is is self-loathing. Yeah. And there's another great book called Silently Seduced. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read it. Uh, I forget the name of the author, but Silently Seduced is the book. He, uh, he talks about how what happens in relationships, and tell me if this is true for you, is you'll pick some, you'll start taking care of their needs you get your worth and value by taking care of their needs but it's never enough and you start to build up resentment and that resentment starts to poison the relationship so you stay with them out of a sense of duty while this resentment piles up and eventually it all goes wrong right well no that's happened what they that that codependent <coughs> piece of me 
Like I didn't identify completely until right. pretty recently right. until I was engaged to somebody and it blew up. And that, and that was that relationship. But before that, I was sort of the other side. I was this sort of emotionally volatile kind of, you know, problematic person constantly in a state of contrition. Right. And then I sort of learned to shut my mouth and then I became, you know, dramatically, like, you know, I tried to nurture a, a very insane relationship, you know, bl almost blindly thinking that right. the other person would change and that was a big wake-up call. Yeah, because that, if you, maybe there's this idea if I can change, I can heal my childhood wounds. If I change her, uh, it's like I fixed my mom and she's okay. Yeah, well, you're not thinking that way. Right. You're, you're, well, subconsciously, you're, unconsciously. I, I guess that's right, yeah. But so, so, so like the most freeing thing was for me to realize like, what's the best? Yeah. That I was kind of running these unconscious patterns over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And if I could, but by the way, recognizing them was not enough. Mm -hmm. Like once I recognized them, like I still blew it for like years mm -hmm. uh, until I finally said, okay, I got to take like the stuff that's wrong with me and think of it like a cancer mm -hmm. and just like attack it with every, you know, therapy possible. And also like, I don't know if you do talk therapy, is that mostly what you do? Mm -hmm. um, I find the talk therapy like the information didn't come in rationally through your mind. Doesn't it came connect. in emotionally through your feelings. And yeah. It's funny. It's hard to talk about that stuff, isn't it? Is it hard to talk about that? Because I feel so passionate about it, but I don't, I find that it's hard to explain um, that deeper. I think we're, I don't, I, yeah. I'm, not, I, I'm not having a hard time understanding oh, no. you. Yeah. And, and in, in I'm just like, thinking for someone listening, they're like, okay, get over this therapy shit and tell us about the not other stuff. Don't, okay. don't, you don't assume you still have that weird accommodating thing. I might want to work on that a little more. <laughs> Great man. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but uh, no, because like a lot of this work I, I've been reluctant to do right. but, and it's still fairly intellectual for Be me because right now. What? Yeah. The intellectual. Yeah. yeah and look, I and, guess because like I've learned to live with pain, and and I and I and I see it as sort of ground zero for me. And I like you know as a comic and as somebody who you know is emotionally insulated a bit, except when I'm talking to strangers or people right. that I know are going to leave in 20 minutes, right. like you. That you know my capacity to stay open and to not uh, live in those childhood fears that you know are are um, not real anymore is is muted. And, and, and I think that one of the reasons I'm, I haven't done, you know, the, the type of, you know, almost life-saving work that you felt you had to do was because of a, a different type of fear that like, you know, this is, you know, that there is a, a deeply wired comfort in discomfort for me. Yeah. I understand. I mean, I understand that. I understand, I understand that fear. And I think I had that too, that I would somehow lose something yeah. instead of gaining something. Um, but I think, I think you, I think you got to do it because something has to change or something has to crack and you got to take yourself outside your comfort zone. And the other thing is if you look at the way you're raised and I don't, you know, for like, you know, dad was emotionally distant, right? Your dad. And volatile. Kind of, and, and volatile. So you're kind of walking on eggshells. There's no connection. Mom was kind of consumed with her own stuff and her love was kind of conditional in a way. And there was a lot of, uh, yeah, there, it was conditional, but it was, it was more based on their own fears. There was a right. lot of worry on behalf of both of them that, you know, what they saw as love was a sort of panic. Yeah, uh, that like, it, you were almost like an appendage, right? And not a separate person. You were like this, you know. In moments of panic, you know, you were just part of them. That they were like, you know, I, I've got to deal with that. My mother had, you know, had, had eating disorders, so her panic was mostly around my being fat. So and and, and so it, what it wires you is to a have no idea what intimacy is, none, um, and, and the inability to give or receive love. And they, yeah, and so and so like this makes sense. I can connect. It's this is the game to you, which is I can connect with people, but in this position of power, we're in my garage. Yeah. I'm controlling the conversation. You're yeah. gonna leave later. So this is this almost is probably why you're so good at it because this is your 
Kind of, yeah, there's that, but it, it is my intimacy, right. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, in, in, in other relationships, like, there's also the fact that, you know, people start to see you a certain way, which you experienced, and and they'll want to interface with that, what they see, and, right. and, what, and you may be putting it out, but in your mind and in your heart, you're like, that ain't really me, but you're not going to do anything about it. Right. You're going to let yourself just be taken. Right. And that's some other horrible thing. And and the and the other thing I'd imagine is that you you can't if you can't be calm with something's at peace you can't you, there always has to be some emergency some danger something about to go wrong yeah like yeah there's a there's definitely a, a drama element that, and it's exhausting oh like, yeah yeah I, I, it's it's a lot less with me now and right. and I'm I'm fairly cognizant of, of trying to to sort of cognitively manage it you know to not make choices that will cause it so I'm on top of that a bit. Right. Yeah. I think, I, yeah, I, th I think so. And what's your resistance, do you think, to doing the things that will actually shift something? It will become sort of time and just sort of investigating how I need to do it. Like, I don't, like, I, you, you know, I know that I'm, I've made progress. Right. And I know that, I, and I've recently really realized that there is another leap I have to make, uh, you know, that, that could free me and open my heart. Um, I, I just, I, I just have not pursued it as, uh, as much, but I know it, right. you know, I'm not just blithely in denial. I'll speak for myself that I was so scared of marriage. I was scared of being with someone for the rest of my life. I was scared of, you know, connection. If someone got too close or maybe clean with me, I would just sort of like my skin would crawl. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and now it's like, oh man, I, I mean, it's, the sex is better cause it's super, so connected. Like I'm happier than I've ever been and uh i can like the world's a little bit brighter because i can see the yeah well, whatever sun, see the sunshine and, and i just like it's incredible how much energy i invested in keeping myself from being happy like it's so much work to keep myself from being happy it was insane but you but it, when you're in it you just think it's who you are exactly and because it's so hard to see yourself everyone else can see it so the journey through the truth is is this psychological journey in all its manifestations pretty much and and uh you move through a lot of different you know, alternative lifestyle communities to see if there were solutions there. Yeah, it's funny because, yeah, like I sat down to write the book and it was gonna be this kind of semi-angry book about how monogamy doesn't work, relationships don't work, it doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. doesn't scientifically make sense, biologically, yeah. and, you know, monogamy is something the Catholic Church instituted in the ninth century. Right. Why are we still doing this? So you this? were still operating from your disease point of view, yeah. trying to justify your behavior. Exactly, and I thought, I'm gonna go invent a new kind of relationship that's true and authentic to me and show the world how it's better and they they're wrong yeah. right and then and so uh so i tried you know the polyamory scene the swinging scene uh tried having an open relationship all those different things well like, let's talk about those quickly sure. the polyamory scene what went wrong um so i went to this thing called the world polyamory conference mm -hmm. and i thought they'd talk about how you deal with multiple relationships and it was this very weird new age thing where they had something called a puja, P-U-J-A. Mm -hmm. And they were just sort of in a, it was just the weirdest thing. I don't even know what, I, I don't, it was so confusing, but I was, they were kind of having this kind of group orgy, but it was all kind of new agey. And they were talking about priestesses. They didn't talk about your your penis was your wand. The sacred cathedral was the woman. Like, what the fuck was this? It was just some weird, like, it was some weird. I don't know that that would be the. That yeah, wasn't the answer. So Representational of the polyamorous and I got community. Kicked out, I got kicked out of the orgy for eating popcorn. Mm -hmm. I was eating popcorn. They said, you can't eat food in a temple. You need to leave. Really? And I got, so I got kicked out of the orgy for eating popcorn. And so that was my. A blessing in disguise. It was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> so then I decided, I th I, like you said, I said, well, that's, that's a part of the community, but it's not. I mean, yeah. It must be something else. And so I moved in with three girlfriends. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to live in a free, free love nirvana, <laughs> right? Yeah. They're all non-monogamous. We're going to have this great life. 
And uh, it totally blew up in my, obviously anyone listening knows it blew up in my face. Uh-huh. Um, little things that they don't teach, they didn't teach you at the conference, like who gets the front seat of the car. Uh-huh. You literally have three people standing at the door and have to choose one. Uh-huh. Uh, and I ended up literally sleeping on the couch almost every night uh-huh. alone. Now, what, how, like when you were in the, the, the grips of your sex addiction, we talked about dominant, submissive and that stuff. Right. How, where did you end up with, in that world? Uh, I, I really like uh, that. I think I looked at the kink community and watched some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really like, I like to be equals. I don't like to be dominant or submissive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, okay, so you tried the living with three girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what was the, you, you know, was there more of a, an equality sense? Did you start to regain your respect for women I mean, or, or I think, develop it? Yeah, I think, I don't think I ever had like, a disrespect. Yeah. Like, or, 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 or consciously, but I think I always. Um, that maybe sex was so important to me that I would do or say what I needed to to get it. Right. I think it was less true now, but I think what it was, what I learned in this, it was a fear of love. If somebody, someone in the group became too attached, it was the pathological accommodation. I try to make everybody happy, mm-hmm. and I was, in trying to make everybody happy, I made nobody happy. You know, so right. this this person might get jealous, this person might get upset. So I just felt like I was walking on right. like just eggshells around three people's feelings. And what was the swinging situation? If it wasn't lumpy and game, what was it? Um, the the, the swing the swing situation. I went, I went to this amazing party. Like, people were just, they were gorgeous. Like, just insane. Oh, really? It was in Vegas. The party was called Bliss. Yeah. And probably the most, like, like all the most gorgeous people in Vegas were at this party. Um, and, and I really talked to the guys about it. Uh, oh, and that's, that somebody gave me some GHB, and I, pa- I passed out uh, in the middle of the first orgy. <laughs> like, everything was a disaster, whatever I did. Um, but, but what was interesting is I talked to the guys about why they would do it. And so one guy, uh, or actually... Uh, He's somehow a child actor ends up in every book. This is like Corey Feldman was yeah. running the orgy or something. Right. He already in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, so he said like the jealousy, he's like, I get high off the jealousy. If I feel jealousy that someone's having sex with my wife uh, or girlfriend, I'll just sort of work through it and turn it into pleasure. So he got like high on the jealousy. Yeah, that's a, but that's a form of... Uh, Emotional masochism? Well, it's a form of being submissive. Yeah. Yeah. And another guy said like, I just, I want male approval. So I share my wife or girlfriend with these guys to get male approval so i really kind of got into the that's another submissive yeah yeah it's interesting mm-hmm. um but it just felt it felt like very almost more objectifying than the game world because everyone their wives were almost like this piece of property to be yeah know, but what traded. was it like at home like what was it like over breakfast and after work that was kind of like the nice stuff is like the couples would like hang out afterward and they kind of were like you know a couple would be dating another couple they'd hang out it was nice it was kind of intimate and cool I actually what i liked about it in this case, in this scene, was that the couples were kind of intimate friends. But it's weird. It seems like there's no way to avoid, in those type of situations, ultimately experiencing what you experienced, which was it takes a lot of energy to sort of maintain that lifestyle. I don't see... It doesn't sound like it could ever be just matter of fact and like, yeah, this is what we do. I, th- I think... I mean, I think if you do anything enough, right, there, there's, an, there's this concept I think they call the burn-in period, which is... If you're going to do one of these alternative lifestyles, right. it takes a few years to get used to. But after a while, I guess anything can be. This is what we do. So right? you move through all this stuff, and I saw in the book that you know what did you learn about uh, alpha and beta and that kind of stuff? I mean, those are nonsense concepts. They are. I think they are. But what did you find medically? Oh, that, that was that was I would lessen this. Oh, I mean, yeah, here's what I think. I you know I always have these discussions: is monogamy natural? Is all this? I think honestly, if you're basing your behavior on a scientific theory, yeah, then you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> right, because I really would really. I think I think you'll use science to justify stuff. Like, uh-huh. well, it's evolutionary okay to spread my seed, so thus I'm going to go have sex. You know, it's fucking like I think evolution is such a slippery argument. You can use it to justify anything. It's so open ended. By the way, one interesting thing is I talked to a geneticist because mm-hmm. I thought, you know what, 
maybe I'm just not born to be monogamous. And this guy found the gene, the 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 uh, gene responsible for monogamy. Right. And I guess it's a it's a gene with a coding for a long vasopressin receptor. If you uh-huh. want to drop some science, sure. Go that ahead. that that is why that uh, creates kind of monogamy. And so mm-hmm. I thought maybe I just have the wrong size vasopressin receptor or whatever. No test for that though, is <laughs> There's there? There's no test, but I went to him. So I said, listen, am I, am I just doomed or can I get a transplant or something? Yeah. And he said, he said, I found that there's no behavior that's purely genetic. Uh-huh. Like you, the environment switches things Of course, well, that's how on. adaptation works. Exactly. Right. So he kind of says, you know, you and we're making a choice. You and I are in control. You're choosing to stay yeah. as you are. Right. right. Choosing yeah. to be, to feel like. Right. I yeah. I mean, if, if everyone was the confined to their genetic behavior everybody would be everything would be dead right and it, the whole thing is nonsense <laughs> no, no evolution yeah <laughs> you have to make right adjustments in order to uh to for the species to survive right and but we have the amazing power to rationalize any kind of behavior Humans, is yeah. right now i know you talk about you know your relationship with your mother and i know at the beginning of the book you know you you start to you begin a thread through the book right. about what you found out about your father uh do you want to talk about that or do you want people to read the book I mean, I'll, I'll talk about anything. I'm open to it. Um, oh, man. I, I'll, t- I'll t- see if I can say. Uh, uh, so um, I guess like my father had like basically my mom and dad had a horrible relationship. I mean. But you knew that? I, I didn't as know. I just I knew that. I, mean, I was a child. I always knew they had a horrible relationship. But what, mom, yelling or screaming or what? <laughs> no, because. And th- my mom would come into my room mm. and complain about my father. Right. And tell me. And again, I'm 11, 12, 13. Mm, yeah, right. Tell me no matter what you do. When you uh, never grow up to make anyone as miserable as your father makes me. Oh my God. Why are you going to say that to a kid? It's sad, dude. It's so sad what parents do and not, not realizing it. Yeah. Um, in fact, I found a punishment uh, that my parents gave me when I was a kid. I had to write, I am a dumb jerk over like 500 times. Mm. Like you're programming someone to think they're a dumb, you know, I mean, all the self esteem, nothing's a surprise. Yeah. And what was the core of their problem? Oh, the core of the problem, man, it's so fucked up. It's weird. To, so so my my dad, I mean, there's so many problems, but the main thing, my dad had a fetish for handicapped and amputee, people with physical deformities mm-hmm. that he kept secret. And my mom has a limp and a physical deformity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she found out later, she never knew this. Mm-hmm. In fact, to this day, he, they've never discussed it. Or Are they married? They're married. They're still married. They wow. Exist. That's why I love the movie Bitter Moon that I mentioned earlier, because mm-hmm. it's two people staying together, keeping each other miserable. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so basically she was his, uh, like she was his secret fetish object. Like mm-hmm. he uh, took videos of their honeymoon and like cut it together just with photos of her limping. And then he has some kind of group of friends or guys who he trades this stuff with. Oh my God. It's the weirdest shit. Like that. So the, yeah. So it's that the skeletons in the closet that, and I really thought till I found this stuff, I thought I had a normal family and a normal, normal childhood. I wrote about the weird people, the mysteries in the game and the Motley Crews. Yeah. And it was kind of this moment when I realized, Oh, I'm just as fucked up as all those guys. Yeah. And I didn't realize we're all just as fucked up as those guys. We just don't see it because we're so used to living with ourselves. Yeah. And, and what did you, what, what did you experience emotionally upon, upon processing this or, you know, I think what it did for me was it caught me up with my mom. Like I kind of just got involved in her secrecy and we would investigate my dad together and we'd, you know, tr- she'd call and we'd trade this information about it. When you were a kid? Uh, or yeah. recently? Kind of once I just, I think when I was a kid, she just complained about my dad and say, but when I found this maybe about 17 or 18. Oh. So since then till like, 
I stopped it maybe for three or four years ago. Yeah. That was it. Like our relationship was investigating my dad and trying to figure this stuff out. And she'd say, well, I found these new photos of him doing this. Uh-huh. And we had this just this. And, if, it's and he's like, just in the room. He's in the other room. He'd be, yeah, he'd be in the other room like oblivious. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what's your relationship with them? And she was always paranoid. He had cameras around the house filming oh her. Oh my God. It's so sad, man. It's so sad. Like, I mean, that's why you have, uh, And it's also yeah. very defined though. You know, it's not like, because then you get, you step from, just this um, uh, emotional uh, abuse and uh, to something that's that's tangible and bizarre, right. and then you bond with your mother over the bizarreness of 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 the situation. But where where do they stand now, and where do you stand with them? Um, yeah, the weird. They, so this the most fascinating thing happened, and I'd be curious to ask you this about your mom as well. So, as so as I was doing this book, I set boundaries with my mom. I said, "Hey, I'm not." I'm not going to keep secrets anymore. Like it really made me a cheating, you know, uh, you know, I'm not going to keep secrets anymore. I'm not going to talk to you about what's wrong with dad. It's hurting my relationship. So no more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she kind of got upset and then stopped talking to me for a while. And then she texted me and she said, uh, oh, I've got this new secret email address. Don't tell anyone. And I wrote a book about your dad. Will you kind of help me with it? Oh my God. Um, and I said, uh, uh, and, I, and I got excited. She was talking to me again. So I'm like, oh sure. Yes. Great. Like a dutiful son. <laughs> yeah. And then about a, Day later, she said, when can we talk? And I realized, what the fuck am I doing? You get caught up in it, man. Oh, yeah. You've been deprived of it. And you're yeah. like, oh, where, I want to <laughs> yeah. read the book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so I texted her back, hey, I'm happy to talk about anything, but I just can't keep secrets and have yeah. these conversations. And you know what she said back? What? Nothing. Last time I heard from her. Oh, shit. It, I mean, this is, How I shouldn't even say this. This was uh, maybe like six months ago. Oh. And literally, I shouldn't even fucking say this, but fuck it. Like, we, so we, we, I just had a, have an eight month old. And you're married. I'm married. Yeah. They have an eight month old. They have not come out to visit. They're only their only grandchild. Like their shit is stronger than wanting to see your only grandchild. It's insane to me. It's insane, dude. I'm sorry. Yeah, but I think. But the night. I mean, the upside is. The upside is, all this let me know that okay, that the stories that I'm hearing in therapy, these are true. There's this behavior is still happening, mm-hmm. and so that divorcing, say divorcing my parents, mm-hmm. was what enabled me to actually become an adult and have an adult relationship so the so the upside is seeing the reality seeing what it really is that you're there to serve their needs they're not there for your needs can allow you to sort of divorce yourself from your parents and start to have your own life and and are you uh, happy yeah but like like yeah like i'll just be changing in the bathroom with ingrid and i'll think fuck why was i resisting this shit for for so long so much happier than yeah yeah, yeah it could have been there's some sadness and some grieving over the loss of the relationship the, with your parents. Yeah. The, the horrible relationship. Right, right. So what are you grieving anyway? Like, <laughs> like if your friend treated you like that, you'd be like, good riddance, right? But you, they, met, they made you. Right. Yeah. They made you mentally and they made you emotionally and they made you physically. But, so you're trapped. Yeah, yeah. Or, but you don't have to be trapped. No, that gets you. Yeah. Get you. Yeah, you know, I'm keeping this diary for my son. Yeah. Of everything that I feel like you and I are doing right or wrong, all our decisions about parenting. So uh-huh. when he grows up, he can know maybe what his emotional DNA is and make of it what he will. It's interesting, man. I and mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. So so you do the work that you need to do day to day to nurture and uh and be emotionally uh upfront and honest with your monogamous relationship. <laughs> that, that, that yes, that it's pretty and also being aware of when you're getting stuck in your story. Uh-huh. Like simple thing. She texted me, I was coming home. Mm-hmm. Uh I was fifteen minutes late. I was at the working out fifteen minutes late. It was a film crew waiting in the house. Uh, to film me for something. Mm-hmm. And she said, they've been waiting here for 15 minutes. That's so rude. Yeah. And I texted her back saying, I'm coming. She's, and she responded just, so rude. So I thought, 
fuck her. She's just like my mom, nagging. She hates me like she hates my dad. Leave me the fuck alone. Can't I live my own life? And then like so, then I'm like, wait, 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 wait. What's going on here? Like, how many times has she said nice things to you over the week? And how many right, times has right. she said negative things? Like, if so, you expect someone to love you, you be always be positive about you. You're insane, right? Yeah. You're they 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 don't have to like everything about you. So I thought that, and then I thought, um, let me ask you myself a question. If you have an appointment with the film crew and you go to work out, you leave all those people waiting at your house for 15 minutes while you go to the gym. Is that rude? Yeah. I'm like, yes, of course it's rude. <laughs> so I responded to her like, yes, it is rude. And she said, oh, you know, she responded to say, sorry, I was just stressed out. And we got to have a relationship instead of me starting to think she's naggy, resentful, I need my freedom. I just yeah, thought- m- yeah. Making a monster with yeah. misperception. Exactly. Getting out of your own story. Yeah. Interesting. Well, well, this is great, man. And I, it sounds like a real fucking emotional- you know, cathartic and, and, and courageous journey you took with this thing. It was the best journey of my life. And now I can actually be a, stop the cycle and be a better parent than the ones you and I may have had. Congratulations. Thank you, man. And, uh, I'm excited for you, Neil. It was great talking to you. Cool. We covered a lot. (laughs) It's great. So wait, 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 what, what do you have? So before we came over, yeah. I looked at the interview I did with you maybe 20 years ago. Really? You were um, 33. Really? Yeah. So hold on. What are you? I'm you're 52. Now? I just turned 52. So, so yeah, almost 20 years ago. And I looked over because I wanted to think, well, you know, were there clues here that you'd be doing what you're doing now? Really? Yeah. And there, you have there that? Yeah, I have that. I kind of wrote down some of those quotes. When I was like at Luna or when did you- Yeah, like- you, were, you were at Luna and we we're talking about the Luna scene. And by the way, and I wrote some of the stuff you said made like you were really cerebral, maybe stoned. Yeah. Because uh, some of the stuff made no sense, but I wrote down some quotes. Oh, I want to hear. And it makes sense to. Oh, come to on! This doing. is crazy. Yeah. So, um, let's see. All right. So, oh, so the first thing, and this is kind of you said, if narcissism were a political movement, we would be unstoppable, which I thought was funny. Um, then I don't. You, that was a bit. That was a bit. Yeah. Then you lambasted the idea of Dennis. I don't know. I wrote this. Lambast the idea of Dennis Miller. And references implying wisdom. I have no idea what that is. I do. Yeah. And so here's another thing. These are more where you were. That's a fake intellectualism. Like uh, uh, Chris Kelly's dad, Sean Kelly, who was a writer for the National Lampoon, who I'd met, who I'd met briefly, and we were talking about comedy, and he said Dennis Miller fearlessly attacking trivia. Right. 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 (laughs) So funny. Still. Still. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then here's another thing. I just thought was funny of where you were. You wrote, "I'm here reading Wilhelm Reich and listening to the Verve Collection." Uh, and I'm going to have to talk to people who worked as a temp all day. And about some of the stuff you said, part of the Luna trip is people embracing their marginal existence or how they use their free time and indulging their liberty. And then you said, it's hard to take into consideration what liberty really is. And I, we had this long interview and I could almost only, only had like one quote I could use right? because it was really- I was out there? A, a abstract. Yeah. Here's one that you said, and then we'll get to the stuff that I think led to yeah. that, that is similar to what you do now. This one I want, I actually wrote WTF next to it. Okay. Ironically. Uh, let me see if I can explain okay. it. Okay. It's hard to do comedy that makes an impact. Discussions of morality evaporate. We're evolving into perfect consumers, and history is a pool of references. In that context, it's impossible to speak in a human voice. Well, well, that well, that, well, that makes sense to me. That um, that what I was reacting to was that everything you know on the internet and everything that's coming at you no longer has a historical context. So there is no narrative of time. You're just dealing with bits and pieces, which I think is, I'm not going to say prophetic, but it is what content is and what right. content implies. And that, you know, as perfect consumers, you know, the content is what we consume and it is all anyone talks about. Content. Yeah. 
So I think that was sort of me reacting to the fact that that there was no historical narrative to anything anymore and it was breaking down and that, so, that, that was that would that, that that is pretty prophetic because that's exactly what's happening now so so i think what i was experiencing is that you know if you don't have some foundation in either a personal history or point of references that sort of define you or your outlook uh how do you talk like humans that makes sense yeah <laughs> <laughs> i still think about these things. No, it's amazing because i was wondering if you know what you were you, what you had said uh so this is what it was interesting is what you liked about Luna was the type of intimacy makes it interesting for you. So, which is kind of what you have now, and you liked it because it was more like having a real conversation, right? Here, which which you were attracted to, and you said I'd like to have the, have the opportunity to have more of those. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, isn't it great? And then you said, um, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, taking the freedom to indulge, having that freedom. It seemed like you wanted the freedom to indulge to have on these stage. Yeah. 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 To like the thing that Luna gave me was that, you know, because I would force myself not to construct material, but to work through ideas that I was thinking about, like uh, the, that idea of, uh, of, uh, of, um, perfect consumers and whatnot. Cause I was very hung up on that. Cause I, at that time I was putting a lot of stuff into my brain that was sort of, um, you know, postmodern theory and, right. and, and stuff like that and trying to process it through my own emotions. So yeah, the freedom to just, you know, be in the present and talk about now was very important to me. I wanted to be emotionally available in a very real and present way as a performer doing comedy, right. which is sort of antithetical to that. And only there's only been a couple of guys that did that. You know, Pryor was probably might be the only one right. where you really felt that this was an, an emotionally risky undertaking for this guy. And that that his sense of of that you know, what I got from him was really what I aspired to over being an entertainer was the ability to to live it, to have it be a, a, a kind of a life or death situation up there. Yeah, it's funny because you, you and you mentioned that it's fascinating, the, the kind of threads, because we talked about prior and that. Yeah. And, 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 and that. So, so, I, so I have some consistency. You have some consistency. And, you know, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, and maybe it's the critic of me psychoanalyzing stuff. I was thinking like you know, the Lauren Michaels stuff that's gone on here. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking there's some point where you're maybe making, I'm not sure, making him your dad. And like, there was this rejection that needs to be. I just, why well, just, it just did the interview. Right. Yeah. I heard that. Cause right. it made me, maybe think about, I felt, I felt he was evasive uh -huh. on the question. He started talking about how like, uh, he was talking about oh, why no, he didn't give me the job. Yeah. First he talked about like how network TV was like the railroad of what the fuck does that have to do with the question. Right. And then, Oh no, you would have been new. And I was trying to protect you from that new thing. Like that was, I felt like that was, I well, felt, he did his best to try right. to, to, to be my dad as, right. as best he could in right. that moment right. and not hurt my feelings too much. I did get a lot of closure, but I had it a bit before going in. I made it very large, but I, I, you know, I did feel that he showed up for me. Right. And, but you know, what's great. What I love. And again, this might like, there, there are these moments that are really impactful in your life. Yeah. Uh, and somebody, I heard one person listen, he said, oh, it's so narcissistic, he's talking about himself. I'm like, no, if you talk to someone, why would you not ask if they remembered, why not ask Keith Richards if he remembered you? That's really what you want to ask. Sure. Or, or, or to ask Lord Michaels what he remembered about this moment. Or Yeah. Uh, so, like, why not ask that and get some resolution? That's actually not narcissistic. Yeah. That is that is saying, you, you know, I didn't make it about me. Right. I just was looking for a point of connection. Right. And the great thing is now they remember. Even yeah. if they forgot then, now it's become an impactful <laughs> moment in your life. You made it exist. Oh, well. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that I was true to myself. That, to me, hearing that stuff, like, you know, some of that stuff was raw and clearly I was trying to resolve some things intellectually, but uh, I seemed to be pretty true to myself. 
Yeah, it's really it's funny. I'll, I'll read one more. I'll see if there's anything right. I just wrote. It. Uh, oh, it was a hard lesson to learn that alternative comedy, I guess, doesn't work on a big stage. That's what we were talking about. I do bits and personal stories. They're hard to do on TV. People need closure. If you expose yourself, people don't know where to laugh. Uh, how do you get closure on a spot that's personal? That's true. Um, and again, I think that's kind of that was a that was an ongoing thing. Um, but it was it it did become sort of. Uh, you know, as I got older and more adept at the craft of comedy, you know, that was really uh, resolved by an application of craft. Right, right. Yeah. But it's but it's fascinating because I think all those things he wanted, the freedom to express, not to worry about where people are laughing, to take emotional risks is what you're doing here and probably why it's done what it's done. Oh, fuck. It's so nice to hear that, Neil. It's so nice to know that, that I did... Um, I did know what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. You weren't as dumb as he, and naive as, and, and bitter as he thought. Well, thanks for sharing that. Thanks. That was my um, talk with Neil Strauss. I thought it was pretty intense, but uh, I, 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 it, there's a lot of information in that book. It, it, some of it is frightening information, but uh, he did his homework. So, uh, so if you're interested in that stuff, The Truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships, is available now. What else? Uh, I'm my name's Mark. I have a website, wtfpod.com. You can go there, pick up some justcoffee.coop. You can get some T-shirts. I think uh, you can maybe get a poster. You can get on the mailing list. You can check the episode guide to see who's been on this show and perhaps uh, move your way over to howl.fm uh, for the archives. You know that stuff. And uh, New Year's coming. I'll talk to you. Uh, in the new year, if you don't listen to the New Year's Eve broadcast, the New Year's Eve day broadcast, we're going to have a, a nice, uh, not a, a not a full hour with me and Bill Burr, but a nice chunk of me and Bill Burr, and then we're, I think we're going to do some highlights, doing them year-end highlights things. That'll be fun, right? Oh. Boomer lives!